You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Worthy are you, Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain. We come before you, and I pray that you help our hearts to sing praises to your holy name and help us to give thanks to you forever. We pray, O God, that you would speak to us and reveal yourself in your word, and I specifically pray that you challenge us with the reality that you discipline your people for our good And God, would you encourage us with the truth that your joy always follows your discipline. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Praise God that we can gather together and worship him. It is a joy that we get to do that. This morning, we will be in Psalm 30, so please take your copy of God's Word and turn there with me. If you do not have a Bible uh, with you, you can raise your hand. Our strike team's coming down. They'll hand out a Bible to you. Psalm 30 is on page 262 in the Bibles that are being handed out. And as you're turning to Psalm 30, here's a little bit of background of this passage. We learn from the inscription that this is a psalm of David, which means that it was written by David, and that it was a song at the dedication of the temple. Now, the two best contextual fits for this psalm is that it was written by David after his sinful census in 2 Samuel 24, where the Lord then disciplined David by killing 70,000 of God's people through a plague. And it is best thought that this psalm was written after that incident. Uh, The second best fit for this psalm is that it was sung at the dedication of the second temple after the Lord brought his people out of exile. So it's the dedication of the second temple. And in both of those cases, we see that this song was written or sung as a song of thanksgiving after God disciplined his people. So you cannot understand this psalm without understanding it in the context of God's discipline. And what I'd like to do as we go through is I'd like to look at this song through the lens of the people who dedicated the temple, the second temple that is, after exile. And the reason I want to do that is because if you read this psalm and you read through the book of Lamentations, there are so many almost word-for-word connections between those two, this psalm and, and, and Lamentations. Um, And Lamentations uh, is a poetic book that describes what happened to the Lord's people when they were brought into exile. And that book makes it clear that God brought his people into exile because of his discipline for their sin. And so as we go through the psalm, I want you to keep in mind those Israelites who are singing this after the exile, dedicating the second temple. And with this in mind, we'll be able to see how God's people responded to God's discipline 
and that will help us respond to God's discipline. So let's look at this psalm together. Psalm 30. A a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cry to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is God's holy word that cannot and does not fail. The first Rocky movie is one of the most iconic boxing movies of all time. How many of you how many of you have seen the first Rocky movie? Got a few hands. Hey, that's good. I didn't know because it's almost 50 years old. So um, I'm glad that you've seen it. In the movie, Rocky, who is a struggling boxer, gets a once in a lifetime chance to fight the world champion Apollo Creed. And one of the most memorable scenes in the movie is when Rocky is training for this fight with the help of his trainer, Mickey. In this memorable scene, we get to see Rocky, he's like punching the the huge slabs of meat for training. You get to see him like, Mickey's like punching him in the abs just to strengthen his core. And the highlight of it is when he runs up what is, it's now called the Rocky Steps in Philadelphia, and he gets to the top. And everyone, everyone cheers We celebrate how hard Rocky trained so that he could fight the world champion Apollo Creed. My friends, we are also in a fight. It's not against Apollo Creed, but we are in a fight against sin. As we read in in Hebrews 12, as Nate read for us, it says that we have not struggled hard enough in our fight against sin. And I used a boxing illustration because the word there for struggle is actually the word that was used for like boxing back in the day. And so the text is saying like, we have not boxed our sin. I've never boxed before, so this is probably bad like (laughs) form. But we have not boxed our sin hard enough. And so God disciplines us so that we can fight harder. God is our trainer. God is our Mickey. And he trains us through his discipline. God's discipline helps us to fight sin. And we need God's discipline because, to quote John Owen, 
You need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. God's discipline is his training of his children in godly living. And as we learned from Hebrews 12, that God disciplines his children. He disciplines the ones he loves. If he did not love you, he would not discipline you. If you were not his child, he would not discipline you. It is what it means to be a child, part of what it means to be a child of God. And we learn in Hebrews 12 that it is for our good so that we may share in God's holiness. And we learn that in the moment it seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness by those who have been trained by it. God's most common method of discipline is suffering. This means that even though our suffering is painful, it is for our good so that we may share in God's holiness. And this is an absolutely vital topic because we so often think that God's chief concern is our individual personal happiness as defined by us. But beloved, God cares more about your holiness than he does about your self-defined happiness. And as we will learn, the holier you are, the happier you will be. Therefore, God disciplines us for our good. And because this is, this is a challenging topic, I just want to look at it from another perspective here real quickly. We can also think about God's discipline this way. You cannot be a disciple without discipline. Those two things go hand in hand. And on top of that, we know that Jesus Christ learned obedience through his suffering. Hebrews 5.8 tells us that. Even Jesus Christ learned obedience through his suffering. And therefore, everyone who is united to Christ by faith must expect to experience the discipline of suffering. It is part of what it means to be a child of God. And so because this is what it, part of what it means to be a child of God, and because it is truly painful in the moment, we must ask the question, how do we endure God's suffering? And this psalm answers that question. We can endure God's suffering by giving thanks to him. We can endure God's discipline by giving thanks to him. And there are two themes that we're going to see as we move along this psalm. First, we can give thanks that he disciplines us and doesn't kill us. And second, we can give thanks that God's joy always follows God's discipline. Now, before we dive into it, we just need to note that psalms, they don't always make like a logical argument, but often what they do to make their point is repetition. And so I don't have like normal points like I normally would. We're just going to look at these two repetitive themes as we go throughout the psalm. And they are, again, give thanks that God disciplines us and doesn't kill us, and give thanks that God's joy always follows God's discipline. So the psalm begins in verse 1. I will extol you, O Lord. To extol means to, to lift high or to exalt. 
It is to put God in his rightful place, highly exalted as the God of the universe. My friends, it doesn't matter what we believe. This is who God is. God is lifted high as the King of kings and Lord of all things. And the psalm beginning this way helps the reader or it helps the singer focus on the true God. Or to say it in another way, it helps us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is highly exalted. And what's amazing about our highly exalted God is the lengths that he goes to save his people. This is what we see through the rest of verses 1 through 3. You can look at it with me. Um, And I purposely do not have it on the screen because I believe it's better that we look at it in our Bibles. Verses 1 through 3. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cry to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Here we see God saving his people from terrible situations, even death. And we must keep in mind, if we're thinking about the Israelites singing this song after exile, God has put these people in these situations to discipline them for their sin. But God doesn't leave them there. The Israelites who were brought into exile, they were brought into humiliation in every aspect of life. They became the laughing stock of the world. Their enemies gloated over them and mocked their downfall. The Lord struck them with a sickness and a plague, the likes of which they have never seen before. They were so devastated that they had no food, and many of them were even at the point of death. And they were so desperate that they had to eat their own children to survive. Thousands and thousands of people died in exile, and those who were left were on the brink of death. And so they cried out to the Lord, as we see in verse 2. They knew this was because of their sin, and so they cried out to the only one who can rescue them and save them. God's discipline brought them out of a self-reliance and brought them to a reliance on God. And that is one of the things that God's discipline does. So they cried out to, to God. And how does he answer? He answers by drawing them up. He answers by not letting their foes rejoice over them. He answers by healing them. He answers by restoring their life from the grave and not letting them go down to the pit. He answers by bringing them out of exile. Thank God that he disciplined them and didn't kill them. Now we can look at this psalm from the other side of the cross and we can cry out to God to help us. And the God who is high and lifted up answers that prayer by coming down in the person of Christ Jesus to draw us up. Now this language of of drawing up carries with it like if you have ever been to a well and you drop water from a well, there's no way that water can draw itself up from the well. It needs to be drawn up by somebody. In the same way, Jesus Christ draws us up from death Ephesians 2 says it like this, Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God has made us alive together with Christ. 
And not only that, through Christ, we will be given eternal life. Or to say it in a slightly different way, we deserve death for our sin because the wages of sin is death. But instead, through Christ, he dies for us so that instead of death, God disciplines us. And so we should give thanks that God disciplines us and doesn't kill us. And on top of that, God has saved us so that our enemy of sin does not rejoice over us. Sin will not have the last laugh because Jesus has taken all of our sin on the cross. And as we'll see, God's disciplined people will be the ones who are rejoicing because God's joy always follows God's discipline. This is what we see as we continue. Verse 4. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. So just imagine the people singing this as they're dedicating the second temple to the Lord. And even though they've been through more than we can even possibly imagine, they are commanded to sing praises to God and to give thanks for his holy name. And if you're looking at this, like, they went through humiliation and starvation and death. How is it possible that they can give thanks to God? How is it possible that they can sing praises to his name? Well, verse 5 gives us the answer. Because his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. God's anger towards his true people is only temporary. Just remember, God's anger here is in response to his people's sin. It is his discipline for his people's sin. And it is because of God's anger that they were brought into exile and went through some of the worst suffering in the history of mankind. God brought them into exile to discipline them for their sin. The weeping and suffering that is described in the psalm is because of God's discipline for their sin. And so in your suffering, whether you're currently suffering right now or one day when you will be suffering, and I hate that this is a reality, but we live in a fallen world, and so one day all of us will suffer. And in your suffering, it is absolutely vital for you to ask the question, is your suffering God's discipline on your sin? Or to say it in a slightly different way, are you suffering because of sin in your life? Are you depressed because you're sinfully anger, angry and holding on to bitterness? Which as a side note, anger is one of the most common causes of depression. Or are you lonely because you've sinfully built walls around your heart to try to protect yourself and so you keep everyone at an arm's length? Now, there might not be a direct correlation between your sin and your suffering, but you do need to ask the question, is your suffering God's discipline on your sin? Now, with that said, I want to be very, very clear here that it is possible that your suffering is not a result of God disciplining you for your sin. Okay, the Bible makes that clear many places. Job is the prime example. He did not sin, but he suffered. 
So it is possible that your suffering is not a result of God's discipline. But even if your suffering is not brought on by God's discipline, your suffering is meant to discipline you. And I hope that makes sense. God uses your suffering to discipline you. God uses your suffering to help you fight against your sin. God uses your suffering to train you so that you can box your sin. God uses your suffering for your good so that you may share in his holiness. God uses your suffering to train you so that you may share in the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God has a purpose in your suffering, and it is for your good. And what that means is that your suffering is a good thing. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't hurt, but it is a good thing. And we live in a culture that desperately tries to avoid pain at all costs. Sometimes I will take an ibuprofen before I even get a headache. I know that it's coming on. I'm trying to avoid the pain at all costs. Now, I'm not saying we should never take ibuprofen. Um, but other times, have you ever been like so sick or something that you just turn on a screen to just, just try to distract you? We try to avoid suffering and pain at all costs. But what I want to make clear is that pain and suffering is a good thing. A helpful example here is modern-day leprosy. If you're familiar with the disease, uh, with the disease, you don't feel pain. And so what happens is people end up severely hurting themselves because they'll, just for an example, they'll stick their hand in a pot of boiling water. And they don't feel it, so they don't know to take it out right away because they can't feel pain. But pain is a good thing because pain teaches us, pain trains us that, hey, don't put your hand in a boiling pot of water because that's not good for you. In the same way, God uses our suffering to train us in holiness. He uses our suffering to help us to focus not on ourselves but on him. God has a purpose for your suffering, and it is for your good so that you may share in his holiness. And on top of that, we know that weeping may remain for the night, but joy comes with the morning. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your suffering is not the end of the story. Even if you suffer the rest of your life, there is real and true and deep joy in knowing that God loves you so much that he disciplines you. There is real joy in holiness. The holier you are, the happier you will be. Because your joy, your happiness has been refined by the loving fire of God's discipline. God's joy always follows God's discipline for God's people. Therefore, with our whole lives and our whole hearts, even in our suffering, we can sing praises to God and we can give thanks to his holy name forever. We can give thanks to God that he disciplines us and doesn't kill us. And we can give thanks to God that his joy always follows his suffering. Now the psalm continues in verse 6. <clears throat> you can look with me there. It 
As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. This is a comment of pride before God's discipline took place. And this is exactly what happened to the Israelites. The fallout of God's people began during King Solomon's reign when they had peace on every side. Their prosperity led them to think that they didn't need the Lord. And this is a real, just as a side note here, this is a real danger for us today. It is in our prosperity and it is in our ease that we don't think that we need the Lord. We can be especially vulnerable to pride when we have prosperity on all sides and to thinking that we don't need God and that nothing can touch us. And my friends, we need to be on guard. Now back to the Israelites. It was the pride of the Israelites that led to the dividing of the kingdom and eventually then leading both kingdoms into exile. Pride goes before destruction. And so singing this psalm after the exile, the Israelites learned verse 7 from their destruction. And verse 7 carries this meaning. I have learned from discipline that when you showed me favor... You made my mountain stand strong, i.e., life was truly good. But when you hid your presence from me, I was dismayed. God hid his presence from his people because he was disciplining them. And the Lord hiding his face from his people is one of the most terrible aspects of God's anger. It means that he is hiding his presence and his favor from them. It means that he is no longer with them to protect them from their enemies. And to use language from Romans 1, it means that he is giving them up to the desires of the flesh and its consequences. There is not many things worse than God giving you up to your sin. Because God hid his face from them, they went into exile This was God's discipline for their sin. And the only way that they could come back is to cry out to God. And this is what we see in verses 8 through 10. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. I'd like you to notice two things from this prayer. First is that it begins and it ends with pleas for God's mercy. God's mercy is his not giving sinners what they deserve for their sin. They know that they deserve death for their sin. They know that they deserve God to hide his face from them. And so they are pleading for God's mercy. God, don't give us what we deserve for our sin. God, don't kill us. Now, the second thing I'd like us to notice from this cry out to God is that it is godly sorrow for sin. Godly sorrow is in contrast to worldly sorrow. Now, both godly sorrow and worldly sorrow are experiences of real pain and brokenness over sin. The difference is what they are broken about. And we learn these differences from uh, 2 Corinthians 7. So if you have time to study that this week, I'd highly encourage you to do it. Worldly sorrow is focused on the things of the world. Worldly sorrow is grieved by losing things as a consequence of sin. Worldly sorrow is focused on self 
and will eventually lead to death, 2 Corinthians 7 tells us. And this is in contrast with godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is focused on God himself. Godly sorrow is pained over the break in relationship with God. It is heartbroken that God is grieved and offended. Godly sorrow leads to true repentance that will lead to salvation. I just want to give an example here with, imagine the parent telling their child that you need to share your toy, otherwise they will take, like, I'll share your toy or I will take it away from you. Well, the child disobeys, doesn't share the toy, and therefore the parent, being faithful to the, their word, takes the toy away from that child. Worldly sorrow would be that this child is sorrowful and grieved and sad that the toy has been taken away. They care about the toy. Godly sorrow would be grieved that they disobeyed their parents. They would be grieved that they sinned against God. And so you see that the focus here, worldly sorrow is focused on the things of this world. Godly sorrow is focused on God. And this is why verses 8 through 10 display godly sorrow. Because the psalmist is concerned about who's going to sing praises to God if he dies? Who's going to tell of God's faithfulness if he goes down to the pit? His focus is on God and it's godly sorrow for sin. And what we need to know here is that you will never be able to truly fight against sin without godly sorrow. You will never be able to box sin without taking your focus off of yourself and placing it on God. You will never be able to fight sin until you focus on how God is grieved and offended by your sin. You will never be able to battle sin without true repentance that is aimed at praising God. And so let me ask you, in your sin, in your suffering, are you more focused on the things of this world or are you focused on the glory of God? The purpose of your suffering is to help you take your focus off of yourself and to place it on God. And if you are missing this, then you are missing God's purpose in your suffering. God gives you suffering to try to get your attention. He's saying, hey, wake up. You're missing the point if you're only focusing on yourself and what you are losing through your suffering because God's purpose in your suffering is to bring you to a place of relying not on yourself but on the God who raises the dead. The purpose in your suffering is to bring you to a place of godly sorrow. This is how he disciplines you through suffering. And godly sorrow will bring you repentance that will lead you to true reconciliation and restoration with God and godly sorrow will also lead you to joy that you would have never experienced without God's discipline this is what we see in verse 11 you have turned for me my mourning into dancing you have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness this is the exact opposite of how God's people were described in Lamentations Lamentations 5.15 says, The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned into mourning. Again, because of their sin, God has disciplined them by turning their joy into grief 
and they're dancing into mourning. And even though this is a time to weep and a time to mourn, weeping and mourning do not have the final say. And even God's people in the Old Testament knew that their suffering was only temporary. And that if they turned back to God by pleading for his mercy, he would restore their joy. How much more do we know this to be true on the other side of the cross? Because on the cross, Jesus took the full depth of the mourning that we deserve for our sin. On the cross, Jesus became clothed with our sackcloth so that we may be clothed with his gladness. Now, if you're wondering what sackcloth is, sackcloth was a special clothing that was worn in times of deep sorrow, most often for like a funeral or grieving the death of someone. And oftentimes it would cover the whole body. Not always, but often. It'd be kind of like how we would wear black to a funeral, except they would wear it as long as they are grieving. And this psalm says that God will take off our garment. Loose means to like take off. He will take off our garment of deep sorrow and grieving, and he will clothe his people from head to toe with gladness. For God's people, God's joy always follows God's discipline. And in Christ, one day your suffering and your sorrow will be gone, and it will be replaced with joy. And I don't know if that's going to be today or tomorrow, 10 years from now, or when Jesus comes back. But I do know that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, one day your suffering will be turned into joy. And oh, how I pray that is encouraging to your weary soul. Beloved believer, one day he's going to turn your mourning into dancing. He's going to turn your crying into happiness. He's going to take you from the funeral service and bring you to the worship service of heaven. He's going to take off your garment of grief and clothe you with gladness. He's going to turn your deep sorrow into joy inexpressible. He's going to turn your suffering into true happiness as you will be satisfied with God's goodness. He will never again hide his face from you because he will dwell with us and we will be with him. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more mourning or death or crying or pain anymore because Jesus Christ is going to make all things new. And there will be no more pain or suffering, no more agony or grief, no more loneliness or depression, no more sickness or death. There will be no more sin No more God's discipline. Amen? One day we will be delivered from all of those things. And we'll be delivered into the face-to-face presence of God where there will be nothing but perfect and true joy for eternity after eternity. And we can believe this with confidence because we know that God's anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And we know on the other side of the cross that through Christ, the suffering of this present time isn't worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. 
We know that this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And we know that after we have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called us into his eternal glory, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. Beloved, God's joy will always follow God's discipline for God's people. And the ultimate goal of this discipline is found in verse 12. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. The goal of all of this, the goal of God's discipline, the goal of our suffering is so that we would sing praises to God. The goal is that we would give thanks to his name forever and ever. And God's discipline helps us reach this goal. God disciplines us so that we may better praise him. God disciplines us so that he would be the center of our least endeavor. God disciplines us so that we can give thanks to him that he doesn't kill us, but instead he disciplines us. God disciplines us so that we can give thanks that his joy always follows his discipline. And beloved, God disciplines you through suffering because he loves you. You are his child, and it is for your good. Therefore, my friends, embrace God's discipline as his grace to help you fight against sin. Embrace your suffering as God's kindness to you so that you may share in his holiness. You need to be killing sin or it will kill you. And remember that in Christ, one day there will be no more sin. There will be no more suffering, only joy forever and ever. Amen? Let's pray. God, we praise your holy name. We give thanks to you forever. We thank you that your anger is but for a moment, but your favor is for a lifetime. We praise you and give thanks to you that weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And so, God, I pray that you meet your people this morning in their suffering, and I pray that you help them to take their focus off of themselves and to focus on you, that you have a good purpose for their suffering, and that is for their holiness. And yes, God, it is not easy, and it hurts, and we lift our hurt and our pain to you, and we pray that you would sanctify us by your discipline. God, that you would train us to fight sin. And God, help us to keep our eyes fixed on eternity where there will be no more sin or suffering. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on the joy that we get to have with you. And we thank you, Jesus, that you were killed instead of us. God, we love you. We thank you that you loved us first and that you love us enough that you discipline us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.